started this series last week called Reasons, and it's a different kind of series. Uh, you know, the way we typically do things here in terms of the talks is we uh, take Old Testament books, teach through them. We take New Testament books, teach through them sometimes. And then we, we, uh, we take topical sermons um, on, you know, to deal with questions that people have regarding things that are going on in our world. And so this series would be under that category of like a topical um, uh, sermon series, and what it is, is it's a sermon series that's directed towards the curious unbeliever, but also towards the believer who wants to really grow in their faith. And so the question that we have before us today is this, is the Bible reliable? And uh, that's an important question. And this is one of those talks where my hope is that you'll walk away from here and respond by more fully embracing the idea that this is God's Word, and not just in your mind think, wow, that is God's Word, that's real neat, but it will actually compel you to open it more often, because we believe that the written Word of God is, is, uh, reveals the living Word of God, Jesus. And the more clearly you see Jesus, the more fully you understand who God is and who you are and how you're supposed to live. It's very important. Some of you are new here, and you might be curious about kind of how we roll here regarding spiritual things. And what you should know is that we're all about lifting up Jesus. We believe, again, that you more clearly see Jesus, the more fully you understand his word. So we believe that the word of God is inspired by God and without error. And so we try to wrestle with it and think about it, and it's not always easy, right? There are things in there that are like, wow, I don't quite understand that, but we're going to wrestle with it and think about it and ask God through his spirit to open our hearts and minds to more fully understand it. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So we believe that it's important that you understand how to more fully know God. And so what I'm going to do is a little bit more of a lecture style, like I'm not going to lecture at you, but a little bit more... um, like teaching in this talk, then sometimes I do more preaching. I'm not sure there's a difference, but I'm going to give you a lot of information, and I'm going to give it to you very quickly, and here's why. Because we are going to be done about noon. We're going to take a five-minute break, and then all those of you that are members or mission partners of this church, I hope will stay because we're going to have a member meeting today, which is going to be very, very fun. No, I'm going long. <laughs> and that's my whole staff. They're like, please, no. Um, so we are going to be done at 11 o'clock, and it'll be good. So you're going to have to, I'm going to talk fast. You're going to have to listen fast, okay? Raise your hand if you're with me. All right, good. A few questions that we must wrestle with as we think about the claim that the Bible is inspired by God in and meant to help us more fully understand who God is and who we are in the world. But before I ask these questions, I just want to remind you of something that I said last week as I began this series, and that is that my intention this morning is in no way to argue with the critic. 
We can have a reasonable conversation, but I am not into verbal sparring about these kinds of things. But I do think if you're an unbeliever and you're here and you're curious as to why Christians take the Bible so seriously that this might answer some of your questions. It's more than just, well, you must have grown up in a home where your parents like the Bible, and so you feel like you're obligated to like the Bible too. I mean, in my early years of the Christian faith, that was some of it. But as I've gotten older and I've had to allow my understanding of things like the Bible is inspired and without error, and it's God's word for us, is I've allowed those things to come up into like real life and criticisms and and people who do not agree. I've had to ask some tough questions. Like, how do we know that the Bible is what the Christians claim it to believe? And so, and so that's a very important thing. But um, So there's a few questions that we'll ask, and I'm going to ask these questions, and then I'm going to very briefly, in a very elementary kind of a way, try to begin to answer them, um, and then hopefully it'll stir your thinking a bit. First of all, do you know that the translation of... That the translations that we use that actually are then translated into the English version to get, get the Bible that many of you have, uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament was written in Greek. And actually, to get at that, there are manuscripts, multiple manuscripts. And so the question that we must think about as we consider our English version of the Bible and ask the question, okay, how do we know this is God's Word, is are the translations of Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament actual uh, the actual originals, and no, they're not. We do not have the actual original writings of the Old Testament and New Testament. However, we have what's called manuscripts or copies of the originals. So the question is, are those copies of the originals reliable? So that we can actually trust that when we read them and translate them into English, that it is still God's Word. That's the first question. And also, we ask the question, can we infer from the way that the Bible came about that there's something unique about it and that there's some kind of divine intervention in the writing of it. Now, I do not think actually that by reason alone I'm going to persuade you to come to a place in your life where you say, okay, God, you totally and completely have my life. I submit to you. You are my God. I worship King Jesus. However, I do think with some reasonable arguments that it might at least open your heart to the possibility that these claims are true. And then, as a part of that, the Holy Spirit begins to work on you and begins to stir in you a belief in the claims of Christianity. And then lastly, uh, the question is, well, how are we to read them? And that's actually going to be the shortest part and maybe the most important part of my talk. How are we to read them? And uh, those are three very important questions. So here's the main idea that I'm driving after that if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's very simple. For our good, we must live with a high view of the Bible as God's word to us. That's my claim. For our good, we must live with a high view of the Bible as God's word to us. And the the implication there is if you have a high view of scriptures, then you will in fact study it and read it and let it shape how you think about things and all that kind of stuff. So to the curious unbeliever, I've already said Uh, I I do not believe, actually, that by reason alone I can convince you to lay your life down in submitting to Jesus. However, I do think that you ought to consider the possibility that that something informs the way you see the world. And chances are it is, at this point in your life, if you're an unbeliever, uh, your own intellect. And so if you could just for a moment consider the possibility that your intellect is limited and that there are things in you that need to change that you cannot change on your own. 
You do need a divine power working in you to transform things in you that you cannot change on your own. To the believer, your commitment to studying the Bible will grow along with your willingness to submit to every truth inspired by God so that you will more fully experience the peace of life with Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question, believer. How many times in the last 30 days have you really studied God's Word? How are you taking in the truth of God's Word? I would ask you, and most of you would say, I do believe that this is inspired by God and without error. You would say that. But why is it that there's such a distance between that intellectual belief and the actual practical aspects of studying the Scriptures? Why is that? It's because... Actually, we may not, in fact, fully believe that, that this is inspired by God, revealed by God, from God to us for life. And so I'm not trying to beat you up if you haven't been spending time in God's Word. All of us could say we need to spend more time in God's Word. But I'm curious about how seriously you take the study, the learning, the memorization, the understanding of God's Word. Because if it, in fact, is God's Word to us, then we ought to take it very, very seriously. We as a church take it very seriously. It informs everything we do. If I, as the leader, did anything that stood outside of this intentionally and was unwilling to repent when it came to my attention that it was different to what God's Word says, then I would be removed from leadership in the church. That's how seriously the Bible is for us. There are things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. There are things in the Bible that are different than what the culture says is acceptable or true. And so we must consider... Why would we believe something or claim something when it, in in fact, at some places, very countercultural and some people will hate you for it? Why? Because we believe it's inspired by God. So with that in mind, the question is about these manuscripts. The Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew, we ask the question... Are the manuscripts that are used to translate them into English actually copies of the original manuscripts? Well, it's important, again, for you to know, we do not have the autographs, is what they're called, which is the original writing that then is copied by many people, and eventually those copies are used to give us an English translation. We do not have the original manuscripts, right? But we do have many copies of the original manuscript. So the question is, can these copies be trusted as actual copies of the originals? Do you know that there were no printing presses in antiquity? When was a printing press invented? I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. I'm just asking you because I really don't know. Somebody said 1500s. Let's go with it. Um. Since there were no printing presses, the way things were copied was by a professional scribe. This was their job. Now, the scribes that copied from the original and made copies that became on scrolls, that became the documents that eventually were copied again and again and again, and we asked the question, are those copies reliable? These guys took this job very seriously. Here's why. They believed what they were doing was sacred and holy. And it happened for hundreds of years, and there's a group in the 10th century, a group of Jewish scribes named the Masoretes, who would copy a book like Isaiah. And here's how they would copy this. I'm telling you this to help you understand how seriously they took copying the original. Um, They would take a book like Isaiah, they would copy it 
letter by letter, they would get to the end, they would figure out what the middle point, the middle letter was supposed to be, they would count, and if that middle letter was off by even one digit, by one space, they would take the entire scroll, which took a long time to do, and they would throw it away and they would start over. So they cared very much about the fact that the copies of the original are very, very important. And some would say, well, there were changes made. There were changes made, so actually what is used to translate into the English version of the Bible are not copies of the original, but something happened in 1947 that was the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century, one of the greatest ever, and that is that there was this Bedouin goat herdsman wandering along near the Valley of the Dead Sea, went into a cave. Inside the cave were these clay jars. Inside these clay jars were these leather scrolls with parts of the entire Old Testament. So, and these were dated 100 years before Christ. And they took these Dead Sea scrolls and they compared them to what had been used by the Jewish scribes uh, for hundreds of years later. And they compared the two and they realized that the copies... Uh, were 99.9% accurate to these scrolls that were found in these caves. And it's significant because it really upends the criticism that the Bible has been changed uh, in the first few hundred years of the church, or that the originals have been changed. So very significant. And uh, so we get to the New Testament. So in the New Testament, there are also copies of the originals. It's interesting because in the New Testament, there are 4,000 different ancient Greek manuscripts. These manuscripts are written on papyrus or parchment. And they contain all or portions of the New Testament. And when compared to one another, so there's a copy here of the book of Mark. There's a copy here of parts of the book of Mark written by different copyists. When compared to each other, uh, there is accuracy to, again, 99.9%. And so what we begin to see is that the multiple copies, when compared together, uh, are saying the same thing, and we can put together with reasonability what the original letters said. Not only were the 4,000 different ancient Greek manuscripts, but there were something like um, uh, 1,000 copies and fragments of the New Testament in Syria, Coptic, American, Gothic, Ethiopic, as well as 8,000 copies of the Latin Vulgate. So someone might criticize and say, well, that the translations that are used to give us the New Testament today are actually not copies, trustworthy copies of the originals, but logic alone will tell you that as far as ancient documents go and the reliability of the copies, it is the chances of the copies that are used to give us our English translation uh, it, is, it is we can be certain, nearly certain, 99.9% certain, that they were copies of the original. And actually the variation, to give us that 0.1%, there's some debate as far as what the difference is, but 0.1% or 1%, they're not talking, the differences do not deal with any like theological issues that would actually, would just be a, a, maybe a clause or whatever. Are you with me? I know this is good. You're excited. You're already text messaging your friends about how they ought to listen to this podcast. I get it. 
So one scholar says it this way, to be skeptical of the 27 documents in the New Testament and to say they are unreliable is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity, for no documents of the ancient period are as well-attested bibliography as these in the New Testament. In other words, people might not question some other writing of antiquity, but they want to question the reliability of the New Testament because they don't like what it says. But what we see is that it is reasonable to believe that the copies of the manuscripts that are used to translate into the English version of the Bible are actual reliable copies of the original. So, with that said, what about it in the Bible makes it unique? What about the Bible makes it unique and special? And before I tell you, can I just say one more time, there are things in you that need to change that you will not be able to change unless the Spirit of God transforms those things. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and it's a conversation that I have with every couple. Every couple sitting before me, and they, I ask them, do you all love each other? Yes. Do you want to be married until one of you dies? Yes. Do you uh, want to have a marriage that you enjoy? Yes. Let me ask you this question for those of you that are married. Do you love each other? Do you want to be married until one of you dies? Have you recently wanted to help the other person die? Okay. Yes, I heard a yes. All right, we have a special counseling ministry for you and a safe house for your spouse. There are things in you, and every person that I sit with in premarital counseling, there are things in the heart of that person that they'll never be able to change on their own. And all of it will get exposed. All of it will get exposed in marriage. There are parts in me that are prideful, that are selfish, that are lustful, that are hateful, that are evil, that no matter how hard I try, I cannot change them. No matter how many self-help books I read, I cannot change them. I need the Spirit of God working in me and shaping me and helping me, and so do you. So the question is, how do we throw our imperfect hearts up against something harder than it so that it's crushed and reformed and rebuilt so that we can love like God would want us to love, so that we can give like God would want us to give, so that we could serve like God would want us to serve? Let me tell you how. You throw it up against God's Word. And you allow God to crush you and to shape you and to make you into the kind of person that is for your good and for his glory. Can I get an amen up in this place? So can we believe that these words on these pages are inspired by God? I do believe that you can trust that. Let me help you along here a little bit in reasonable thinking. First of all, there is a unity to the Bible that is breathtaking. Everybody say unity. So the Bible was written over a span of 1,500 years. It was written by more than 40 men from every walk of life. For instance, uh, Moses was educated in Egypt. Peter was a fisherman. Solomon was a king. Luke was a doctor. Amos was a shepherd. And Matthew was a tax collector. It was written in many different places. The Bible was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Moses wrote in the desert of Sinai. Paul wrote in a prison in Rome. Daniel wrote in exile in Babylon. And Ezra wrote in the ruined city of Jerusalem. Fourth, it was written under many different circumstances. 
David wrote during a time of war. Jeremiah wrote at the sorrowful time of Israel's downfall. Peter wrote while Israel was under Roman domination. And Joshua wrote while invading the land of Canaan. And there are others. And the authors had different purposes for writing. I'm going to get an A. Can I get an amen after each one of these? I'm feeling pretty excited right now. I just want you all to know. The writers had different purposes for writing. Isaiah wrote to warn Israel of God's coming judgment on their sin. Matthew wrote to prove the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Zechariah wrote to encourage a disheartened Israel. Had uh, oh, I screwed that one all up. Zechariah wrote to encourage a disheartened Israel who had returned from Babylonian exile. Paul wrote addressing problems in different Asian and European churches. The Astros are going to win the World Series. So here's the thing. There's incredible unity. Some of you Rangers fans, amen on that one. Just let it be. This is the house of the Lord. Let your heart be changed. All the writers were from vastly different occupations, vastly different backgrounds, different circumstances, yet there is a unified message of creation, the fall, redemption, and humanity, and all of it points to Jesus as King. There is a unity in the Bible. Then there's this little thing in the Bible called prophecy. You see, many religious books claim to be divinely inspired, but only the Bible has evidence of supernatural confirmation. The biblical authors made hundreds of specific prophecies of future events that have come to pass in the manner they were predicted. No book in history can compare to the Bible when it comes to the fulfillment of prophecy. Here are some examples. I'm going to give these quickly. Here they are. Ezekiel chapter 26, which was written about 587 B.C., predicted the destruction of Tyre, a city made up of two parts, a mainland port city and an island city half a mile offshore. Ezekiel prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar would destroy the city, many nations would fight against her, the debris of the city would be thrown into the ocean, and the city would never be found again, and fishermen would come there to lay their nets. In 573 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the mainland city, many of the refuge of the city sailed to the island, the island city of Tyre remained a powerful city. In 333 B.C., however, Alexander the Great laid siege to Tyre. Some of you are loving this, others of you are hating it, just bear with me. Using the rubble of maintained Tyre, he built a causeway to the island city of Tyre. He then captured and completely destroyed the city. Today, Tyre is a small fishing town where fishing boats came to rest and fishermen spread their nets. The great ancient city of Tyre to this day lies buried in ruins exactly as prophesied. If we were to calculate the odds of this event happening by chance, the figures would be astronomically small. Now, it is not by coincidence that he was able to make this prophecy. There are many other, literally hundreds of prophecies. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we begin to read about some messianic prophecies, right? Because this is what we're saying, is we're saying that Jesus is more than a man. He's actually the Messiah promised hundreds of years before his arrival. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we read this, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrath, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now this prophecy was given in the 8th century B.C., more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus. I want you to notice that it refers to the future ruler who will come out of the town of Bethlehem. 
And when King Herod, shortly after Jesus' birth, asked the Jewish religious leaders uh, where the Christ and the Messiah would be born, they told him that it was going to be in Bethlehem, and they cited this verse in Micah. And we see that that actually happened, Matthew chapter 2, and also Luke chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was really significant because Bethlehem was an insignificant, uh, marginalized kind of city. There are other places that we see that there are prophecies made in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So without any doubt, the most astonishing ones are the prophecies about this Messiah who would be crucified. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, written 800 years before the time of Christ, seven or 800 years before the time of Christ. They're written uh, concerning this suffering servant. According to the scholars, uh, and, and this is one thing that came out when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, is that uh, these things were actually written before the time of Jesus, which was, of course, criticized. And, and some people would say, well, they were added later to kind of fit who Jesus was. But the reality is these things were written as proven by the Dead Sea Scrolls at least uh, you know, 700 years before the time of Christ. So there's a passage. There are many cited verses Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. Think cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Christ, Jesus comes along, fulfills these prophecies, here we have a picture of what's called the substitutionary atonement. Here's an atonement that became a substitute for the sins of people. There are nearly 100 prophecies made about Jesus in the Old Testament. So you say, well, I hear that, but I don't believe it. Well, there are almost 100 prophecies in the Old Testament made about Jesus, made about the Messiah, that are fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. I mean, you can say, I don't believe any of it, and that's, you can do that. I mean, that's cool. But I'm just saying to you, like, isn't it possible... That God inspired people to write, to speak these prophecies that were eventually written down. And that the book that we have before us is more than just a collection of words and clauses and verbs. It is, in fact, the Word of God inspired by God. I don't actually think that this is going to convince you to lay your life down and submit your way to the way of Christ. But I do think it's at least worth considering the possibility. I hope you do too. Many of you here are people that would say, yes, I believe that the Bible is a special book. But where is it in your life? I get it, you're busy. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening on your social media. I get it. There's a lot. I mean, you need to keep up with Facebook, right? We need to keep up with the latest Netflix series, and I'm as guilty as the next person. And all those things are okay, but what I'm saying to you is this. If you believe that the Bible is written by people inspired by God, then shouldn't it be more here and less here? William Lane Craig, in his book, Reasonable Faith. (laughs) Sorry. 
in his book, Reasonable Faith, makes an important point. As believers, we know that the scriptures are inspired and that the gospel message is true by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's just something in us that goes, yes! We show that it's true to unbelievers by demonstrating that it's systematically consistent. We make belief possible by using both the historical evidence and the philosophical tools. I try to do a little bit of that here. However, it is ultimately the Holy Spirit that softens the hearts and calls men and women to believe in the God of the Bible. But if you would just for a moment consider with me that the Bible is inspired by God, then the question is, how are we to read it? How are we to read it? There's this interesting passage in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 and 3, where the prophet Ezekiel is being told to go speak to Israel. And before he does, he is told by the Spirit of God to actually eat the scroll. I mean, literally eat the scroll. And so when I ask the question, how are we to read it, what I would rather say to you is, more than read it, we ought to eat it. And I don't mean literally eat it. But listen to this passage. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. What I'm saying to you is that there's something more than just reading the Bible that ought to happen for those of you that believe the Bible is inspired by God. There's a devouring that should happen. There's a sense of of responsibility that comes along with the claim that the Bible is inspired by God and is God's word to us. The responsibility is that we open it and we study it and we read it. We think about it. And when somebody teaches it, we take it in and we, in whatever way we can, figure out a way to learn what's being taught. See, I have thought regularly, and I've preached for 20 years. In my early days of ministry, I was probably concerned with people walking away and going, wow, that's a good preacher. But the older I get, the less important that feels to me because the more important thing is that someone would walk away, wow, that's a wonderful Jesus. And how do I see him and meet him and understand what it means to walk with God? I open the Bible. I'm feeding you, but I want to challenge you to begin more consistently feeding yourself. Eat it. And also, submit to it. If you do not submit to God's word, then you're like a ship without a rudder. You'll drift wherever the culture blows. You'll fritter away your time on meaningless pursuits. You'll be crushed by the difficulties of your life. It will be impossible for you to transform areas of your heart that only God himself can transform. But if you do submit to it, this is my last point, you will grow. Degree by degree, you will look more like Jesus. You will have hope in the midst of suffering. You will live a meaningful life.
You will bring glory to God so that when you see Jesus face to face, he will look at you and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. So I think an appropriate response to this is that you would consider right now in this moment how things might change for you and your posture towards God's word during this week. If you're a curious unbeliever, you might say, you know what? I'm going to take a little more seriously the reading of it. Open my heart to the possibility that it actually does reveal something about God and about me that I need to hear. For those of you that are believers who want to grow, then maybe you would say, okay, I'm going to set some time apart this week on my own to read God's Word. I'm going to make time for a midweek loop group so that with other people I can wrestle with and think about God's Word and be held accountable for my behavior and response to God's Word. You might even say, you know what, I need to make gathering with the church on Sunday morning where God's Word is open a higher priority. So I'm going to move some things around in my schedule so that it's not like I come once a month or twice a month, but in fact, I come every single week and I make the most of it. How will you respond? I hope you do. For your good and for God's glory and for the strength of this church to do all that God's called us to do in this city. With that said, let's pray on and think about these things. If you would bow your head and just in this quiet moment, talk to the Lord. If you're that curious unbeliever, maybe you would be courageous enough to say to God, God, if you really are real and these things are true, help me to believe. For those of you that are believers whose hearts are stirred, maybe you're a little convicted, I know I am, and you want to take more seriously the scriptures as being inspired by God and good for you and for for helping you to see who God is and who you are. And maybe you would just say to him, God, I'm sorry for not spending the kind of time in God's word that I need to. And I'm going to be different, and here's how. How will you respond? With your head bound, consider this, that one way that the Christian church is called to respond is by the observance of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper, which we're about to take, is a time where we come to the table, there's bread, and we take the bread, representing the body of Christ, and there's juice, representing the blood of Christ. We take the bread, dip it in the juice, and we eat it. It's a symbolic act, but it's sacred. What we're doing in taking the Lord's Supper is we're confessing Jesus as Lord. We do it as individuals, but in the context of community, 
as an affirmation of our faith, but it's also an opportunity for us to look back on the cross, appreciating it, thanking God for it, and look forward to the return of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul instructs one of the early churches about the Lord's Supper. So he says this, and it'll be on the screen if you'd like to look at it while I'm reading it. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's prepare our hearts for this. I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, if you'd like to take the Lord's Supper, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've crossed over the line of faith, then you'll come down the middle aisles and then go back to your seat to the outside aisles. I'll be sitting right over here to the side if you'd like to talk to me or you want somebody to pray with you through something that's going on, then I'd be happy to do that with you. God Almighty, we love you and we are so thankful for your word, God. We truly would be like a boat without a rudder, drifting along, moved back and forth by the strongest cultural current. God, I'm amazed that 2,000 years after the time of Christ, the, the spread of Christianity goes, grows stronger, God, and we can rely on your word. And God, I just know that all of us are tempted to rely on other things. God, we want to rely on, on you, Lord. We want to follow Jesus, and we believe that to do that, God, we need to understand and obey your word. And God, that to me feels really freeing. We don't have to wonder at what you want us to do and how you want us to live. So God, now we take this uh, Lord's Supper and by consuming the bread, Lord, we're remembering the body of Christ that was broken. By dipping into the juice, remembering the blood of Christ that was shed. I pray that your spirit would work during this time and we would all respond in faith to Christ. We love you and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.